What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you today. You are always judged, ultimately, on what players you bring in. I, I wouldn't even say to a degree, you're even judged on whether it's a profit and loss. One thing we are always fighting to try and do is to get people to understand there's more to it than just recruitment. Yeah. You know, there is an awful lot in terms of strategic plans, high performance, supporting the academy. Big up and big love to everyone that's been tuning into the pod so far since I brought it back. This week's pod is with Mike Rigg. Mike was recently technical director at Burnley. He's also worked in a different number of roles at different clubs such as Manchester City where he played a key role as head of play acquisition in the signings of Yaya Toure, Sergio Aguero and David Silva. In this podcast we talk about the role of technical directors, the challenges and the pressures that they face, what it's like working with different ownership groups to building and fixing a football club and so much more. I hope you love it not like it i hope you love it so you know what to do download subscribe rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend let's go knew some other guys liked me but i didn't know it was to that extent Imagine being a kid in primary school now it's putting off powerful people and i think they need to recognize that but then also they need to be represented the right way sport in general is nothing without fans uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone that being the tv let's just win this to appease the fan. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. How are you doing today? You good? Great, thank you, Paul. It's great to be on and it's lovely to see you. No, thank you. But yeah, we start off the show with this question, which is, what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? Right, a tough one to start off with. You know, getting into the game, as everybody does, it's always been a sport. And and I'd, I'd say at the you know, at my heart, it's, it is a sport. So I still watch it now. You know, I watch Champions League tonight. You'll watch all kind of games and I watch it as a sport. But, and this, and this is the big but, when you go into it full time, it becomes your business. It becomes your, you know, it's your job. Now, what's really interesting, and I get asked this a lot, which, you know, what teams do you support? And honestly, and this is really sad, and I remember an occasion I've kind of lost my way with supporting a team and you don't have the same kind of feeling when you're working in the industry because I was, and I'll tell you where I was at, and I'll never forget it. I was think I was working for the FA at the time and I went to watch Everton. Yeah. Um, and I think it was Everton, Man, I can't remember it. Well, anyway, Wayne Rooney played. Yeah. And I just looked and I was in the stand and I looked at the faces of the fans um, and it was, I think it was, I think Wayne Rooney scored. But I remember he scored and I remember standing up and looking around the crowd and thinking, that's what I've lost. I'm looking at people just because it was, there was such a look of joy on the face. And, the, and so for me, it's become a business because it's my job. And, and, you know, I just think about it 24 seven as a sport of football, but as a sport in, in, from my angle, which is a business. And I kind of lost my way because I haven't got a club, you know, and I've got kids. And when I left Burnley, um, you know, recently, the first thing they said to me is, who are we going to support now? 
So one of them has actually now become, because I worked for Sheffield Wednesday years and years ago, he's now become a Sheffield Wednesday fan because even my kids have kind of like not got a team anymore. So it's kind of a long-winded way of saying it's always been a sport, but when you work in it, it becomes your business and you can't escape that. That's the way it is. Yeah, no, that's, that's quite an interesting perspective. And uh, just going into work there as well, obviously, you've, you've had different roles within football. You've been a chief scout, you've been a chief footballing officer, uh, and most recently, you've been a technical director. We're, we're almost seeing this trend now, obviously, the whole idea of a technical sporting director. It, it, it sort of came from Europe and it's now sort of coming to the Premier League. And we're almost seeing near enough every single Premier League club having one. Why do you think one is important? And almost, do you believe that every every club should have one um yes i do every club i think every every club should have one in some shape or form and and it's because um it's just because it's so big and complex now as a as a as a body it's not as though let me let me put it into perspective and just look at it from one very simple from very granular aspect when i was at sheffield wednesday we had an academy and you know we probably had round about six full-time members of staff um, in the academy itself. And then on top of that, you know, there was a first team. So you're probably saying at Sheffield Wednesday at the time, including first team, there was maybe 10 to 12 full-time members of staff. Yeah. Fast forward 10, 12 years, fast forward a few more years, you're now going into academies through the chart, through, not through the charter quality, obviously through the EPPP, going into Cap 1 academies. There are now in excess of 30, 40 full-time members of staff. That has to be managed. It has to be part of a plan because the, the objectives of the academy, which is to find, develop young players, it's the same outcome as in the outcome is to find players for the team to actually perform. But it's coming at it from a completely different perspective than the first team manager because the first team manager wants a player now that can go on the pitch and win a game. That quite often cannot be provided by an academy. That's a real long-term plan. So you can, in the, and, and it's a way of saying football has to have a short and long-term plan and there has to be someone that helps that develop there has to be someone that that helps keep some degree of link into the business but also link into the football so it's back to your first question um and the technical director sporting director call it what you will it's virtually the same kind of thing what's the plan and how are we going to get there and how are we going to link the business of, of the game, you know, what we're spending, how we bring income and how are we going to improve, you know, the outcome, which is basically winning matches. Yeah. So, the, you know, your first team manager wants to win here and now. Your academy manager wants to produce that eight-year-old player that's come from the ranks and get him in the first team and, you know, and be your next, next Wayne Rooney. That's a 20-year project. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, your sporting director has to be prepared to be, have a, an eye on both of them. I need to be there now every single day to support the manager to get results. Plus, I also be, need to be there to support the academy manager because he's got a 20-year plan to, to bring these players through. Now, what's different is it's how that's implemented, implemented in the eyes of the owners, in the eyes of the, the, you know, the executives at the club, because each club has different people with different skill sets. Yeah. Um, and... That then has to be integrated into the people that are in the football club. So some places like like Norwich, you know, Stu Weber, who's you know done an incredible job and he's a good friend, he's got a very wide remit as opposed to, let's say, 
you know, you know, maybe myself when I was at Burnley, that was probably more focused on, you know, academy and talent identification. I wasn't really hands-on in medical sports science. I worked very closely with, with Mark Howard, but I wasn't kind of that hands-on. And that's because, you know, each club wants it to operate in a different way. But I, I think the days of people going, uh, being surprised of bringing in a sporting director or a director of football, you know, that's long gone. Everybody kind of does get the head around the reasons for it now. Yeah, and, and just sort of building on, on what you mentioned there, I was always keen, keen to find out from yourself what it's like working with different types of ownership groups because you kind of mentioned there how that I, I almost guess different ownership groups will almost set different ways in which they want the, the technical director and sporting director role to work. And, and speaking with Les uh, when he came on the podcast, he mentioned that whole idea of pulling departments together and, and, and almost creating that kind of kind of philosophy. When you've worked at different clubs like Burnley, working with Mike Garlick and, and working at City with, um, with Sheikh Monson, Khaldun, how do you almost see those differences and contrast in terms of the ways of working and, and, and working at different football clubs? Well, you, well, you've got to understand what the, um, what the ownership wants, first and yeah. foremost, and they, you know, what objectives they want and they set. So, if I, if I go back and, and we'll, let's just use two examples, Man City and Burnley. Yeah. Um, Khaldun Al Mubarak, who was the, you know, it was the, 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 the front guy uh, for Sheikh Mansour for Abu Dhabi, kind of ke- came in, was very, very supportive, extremely, extremely supportive. Everything they ever set out and said they were going to do, they've gone and done. And it was very much, let's do it under the radar and let's tell people about it after. But he kind of went, you guys do your job. What resources do you need to do it? But by the way, here's some things you don't do. Don't embarrass us. Don't, you know, our reputation is important. And basically come up with a proper plan. So, you know, inside there, it was pretty much charged with the likes of Gary Cook, who was the chief executive, who, who said, right, guys, let's, let's get on. Here's our plan. Let's get on and do it. And it was run by the chief executive. And the ownership kind of took a back step. But they were, they were interested. Go forward to the likes of, you know, um, ALK that have come in and brought Burnley. Now, you know, to their credit, they've come and lived over here. They're living in the community and they're in the, they're in the building every day. So that, that's quite different. You know, you've got, you've got people who've now bought a club and they want to be hands-on and they want to be involved in, in the running of the club. So they have got a vision, they've got a strategy and they've got a specific desire on how they want it to be done. And that's not being done from 3,000 miles away. You know, it's done by living and be, breathing and being part of it. So you've kind of, you know, as an employee of the club, you've, you, you have to understand the way the ownership, what the ownership wants. The hardest thing by an absolute country mile is when you do not know. And I've been in these situations when you don't know what they want. Yeah. And you're sitting there scratching your head thinking, yeah, well, you know, we want to win games. Of course we want to get, win games. Everybody wants to win games. Every owner wants to be successful and win games. But what's the underlying plan? How do we want it to be done? And then how does that then manifest itself in everybody's roles and responsibilities? And again, this is one of the biggest challenges. You know, that I've discussed this with a lot of colleagues in my job in, in, in going in. And I had this one conversation with someone yesterday going into a, a championship club. And he's gone, I haven't been given, I haven't been given a job description. I haven't been given roles, responsibilities. It's a nightmare. So can you imagine going into an organization that's owned by, by someone? And it's kind of like, it's not really clear where the reporting lines are. It's not really clear what your roles and responsibilities are. And I still think 
that's one of the biggest problems that we've got now with um, with football clubs that are taking on this technical direct, director role, director of football role. If there's not clarity in that position in terms of what's in the job description and what's the roles and responsibilities, yeah. it just causes confusion inside the organisation, and that's that's where it becomes difficult. Yeah, and, and just even mention on, on some of the stuff that you mentioned there and the things you mentioned in, in the sort of previous question, it almost feels nowadays in terms of a technical director, sporting director, you almost you, you you're almost judged on what you recruit how you recruit, who you sell, how much you sell them for, was there a profit there? And would you almost say that's that's the most sort of most pressured part of the job because that's always the bit that fans are always looking at come come January, come the summer. Underpinning every technical director's job. Let's just call it a technical director for now, just for ease yeah. of you know, for ease of, of discussion. You are always judged ultimately on what players you bring in. I wouldn't even say to a degree you're even judged on whether it's a profit and loss because if as a technical director if you bring a, a group of players in and you bring them in for cheap and end up selling them for a big profit but the team loses you still you still criticize you, you know it's it's still not satisfactory to the fans and it's, and it's certainly not satisfactory to the you know to the business and the and, and the manager so you're pretty much again judged on is that player successful and does he contribute towards winning games? Um, and, you know, whether we like it or not, one thing we are always fighting to try and do is to get people to understand there's more to it than just recruitment. Yeah. You know, there is an awful lot in terms of strategic plans, high performance, support in the academy. You know, I was talking to Dan Ashworth this morning. You know, Dan's at Brighton. Dan, Dan is massively supportive of the, you know, part of his remit and report lines is the wins team. You know, we were, I think, at top of the top, top of the league at the moment at Brighton. You know, so Dan Dan takes great pride in supporting the women's team. Um, but you know, from the outside, what gets the headlines is your recruitment. Yeah. You know, Brighton Brighton signed Mark Cucurella from Getafe. If Mark Cucurella goes on, which I think he will be, a great success in in the Premier League this year, everyone will go brilliant bit of work done. You know, and that's that's ultimately. You know what drives us is is them two times of the year when you're approaching a transfer window, are you ready to get it right to bring in better players that improve your team? Yeah, because it, it's it's almost tough because it's kind of like what you mentioned there. It's being a technical director. It's a long term role. It's a long term strategy. Projects take time, but the difficult thing is that in football you don't have time because stakeholders want want instant results. Fans want instant results, and been able to, to 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 sort of manage that, but one thing I wanted to ask you as well is this whole risk versus uh, re reward factor. And we typically see clubs who come up from the Championship stay in the Premier League. The goal is to be a sustainable Premier League football club. Take a Crystal Palace, for example, sort of finishing in that sort of mid table. Not really have a flirt with relegation, but maybe flirt with relegation. And then fans always sort of turn around and say, "Okay, we've been in the Premier League for five, six, seven years. Can we go to that next?" level that that risk reward element of keeping it stable of can we get to the next level and go a couple of places higher versus oh my goodness we've overspent we've overpaid for players and now we're suddenly in the championship with parachute payments having to play having to pay high, higher sort of wages so how, how do you almost balance the risk reward of let's push for top 10 versus oh hang on a minute we could end up in the championship next season it comes it comes back to your um it comes back to your ownership. 
Yeah. Because if the ownership, the ownership have got deep pockets and are prepared to take that risk, then you pretty much go with it because you're always trying to push. Because the the guy, the guy sitting on your left shoulder, who's the manager, yeah. always wants bigger and better players. You know, and and financial fair play and budgets don't really come into it because it's like go and get us better players on the right hand you know on the right hand side you've got your chief executive who's thinking with the owner listen we've got to balance the books here and we've got to make sure that we safeguard but if you've got an owner with deep top deep pockets who's prepared which you know let's face it there are and there's been some you know amazing owners that have supported clubs forget about forget about the business model and the you know the 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 risk you know when it doesn't pay off but if you've got some you know owners with deep pockets who are prepared to fund that then people go with it and if you you know you've got an owner who wants to do that then obviously you want to just be continuing to bring you know players in that succeed and if they don't pay off not because they're bad players you know they, they don't pay off sometimes because they just don't settle it takes time it's not the right club for them um you know that that comes a a, a, a huge risk and it, I, I refer back to you know, what, what Stu's done at Norwich. You know, I think he talked last time about, last time they got, not last time, the time before when they got in the Premier yeah. League. You know, I, I can't remember the details, but I think they spent an awful lot of the Premier League money on that risk and then got relegated. And you, you find, hold on, we haven't got, you know, mega billionaire owners that are prepared to write our checks and pay it off. So when Stu went there, he pretty much had a remit in his mind with the board to say, right, we go up, we're not going to gamble the future of the club. If we come down, we're going to be in a healthy state. We're going to invest in the academy. We're going to invest in the facilities. And if we go back up, we're going to be in a better state. And that's exactly what they've done. So using, even though I'm, I'm not talking about Norwich from any position of strength, because I don't know the, you know, the detail. Yeah. But for, as, a, you know, as a fan on the outside, you're looking at Norwich and saying, got promoted, built, developed, invested, got relegated. But the club didn't go into, you know, the didn't, club didn't go into financial straits. The, and you know, and as far as I'm aware, the the board haven't invest, you know, ha- haven't had to write out checks worth, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds, and they've come up again this season. And it's, it looks to me from the outside that the club's in a real healthy state. Now, if you look at some other clubs that are prepared to underwrite the, you know, the the, the risk, then that's the prerogative. You know, that's a prerogative of the ownership. But there's an awful lot of discussion now about what the risk is to that. And, you, you know, it, that's been amplified by the challenges, you know, that we all face with COVID and more yeah. so, more so in the championship and down, you know, where, where there's more, you know, more wealthy or more owners in the championship that happen to write out big checks to sustain that club. And when that own, wealthy owner's not there and walks away, it just leaves a big hole and it leaves a big, you know, it leaves the club at risk. And we, we, you know, we've seen that an awful lot. Yeah, and, and just just touching on, on the risk reward, reward sort of element of it, do you, do you almost feel as though that's where the the sort of this the shrewd recruitment comes in, looking at markets that the other other sort of clubs aren't looking at, comes in the money yeah. ball approach, the data, the tech. Where, where do you sort of sit on on all, on that sort all, of stuff? Well, everybody's doing it. Yeah, everybody's doing it in one yeah. shape. Some of them doing it. I mean, Liverpool, I know. You know, through their department, there, you know, under Michael Edwards, they've got an extremely competent, call it sophisticated model of recruitment that's got, you know, real good uh, traditional eyes in the likes of Barry Hunter and Dave Fallows. And then they've got, you know, they've got really 
um, well well organised, you know, data and analytics departments under Ian Graham. What Liverpool have got is they've got that blend right. And obviously it's Liverpool, so attracting players to Liverpool is is always a lot easier than attractive players to Club X. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say, put one down. Um, everybody kind of does it. In, everybody's trying to find that, that gem. Everybody's trying to find that gem and bring it through. Um, and it, it, there's a lot goes into that. There's a lot goes into, you know, finding the player in the first place, bringing him in, opportunity, you know, given, you know, that, that player coming in and being given an opportunity to, you know, go back to Liverpool. Liverpool, not only, you know, I know he's picked up an injury, Harvey Elliott, but bringing Liverpool, bringing him in is one thing, but Jurgen Klopp being brave enough to give that 18-year-old kid an opportunity is something different. So you kind of kind of make all these pieces fit. You've got to have a coach who's prepared to do it. You've got to have a club that's you know prepared to invest and bring the players in, um, and ultimately the players have got to be of the quality that fits into that style of play. So when it comes to using data, using analytics, scouting, recruitment, it's a hundred times more advanced than 10, 12 years ago when I was at Man City. I mean, I use this example all the time. When, when I was at Blackburn and then went to Man City, in order to get video footage of a player, we used to have to send off a, a letter to a guy who lived in Bulgaria who would burn DVDs. We'd say, like, we, we want to see this player in this game, this game, and this game. And they'd burn off DVDs and they'd send them in the post. And like 10 days later, you get a DVD of a player. I mean, this is so the only really way you were seeing play, and this is this was during the era of the Premier League when big money was being spent. So the only way you really get to see players was live. Now, yeah. live's not really efficient. You know, it's it's labor intensive, it's cost, you know, it's not cost effective. Fast forward 10 or 12 years, you've got Instat, you've got Y Scout, you've got every app in the sun where you can just spend all day, every day, searching data, players, video online. So the, you know, the, the, the world in terms of recruitment is taking a completely different shape of, um, than, it, than it was you know, a dozen years ago, where you can get access to information on players and information from anywhere in the globe. You can get it you know, literally at a click of a button. Yeah, and, and, and just sort of in terms of that as well, because as you mentioned it, everyone has the same technology. Everyone's using Scout, everyone has the data, everyone has all these different tools, but w which markets do you look at and think, oh my goodness, these markets are effectively untapped. I was speaking with Les. Les was a big believer, obviously, in his day, back in those players playing in Scotland where other, other clubs would, wouldn't look at the likes of the Virgil van Dyke's people like Stuart Armstrong are speaking with, with Neil Banfield on the podcast. He's a big believer that, that the championship is so, so untapped and, I'm, and, and I hundred percent agree. You, you, you almost look at players coming up from the championship, Jared Bowen, Matty Cash, those, those sorts of boys as well. Obviously you also brought, brought over Josh Brownhill from Bristol city as well was playing good football over there. Do, do you feel like more clubs should, 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 should just sort of be looking at, looking at these markets and which markets do you think? I don't, I don't think they're overlooked. I think the challenge is with the British market is the price yeah. of it. Is, yeah. is it becomes extremely expensive to go and buy a player out of this, you know, within this country. You, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the cost of buying a player, 
you know, in this country from the championship. Yeah. And that, that's, that's reason. I don't think it's because it's untapped. I don't think it's not because it's not seen. You know, we, I think we analyse and watch, you know, League One, League Two, Championship, Scotland, more than anywhere. I think it's because, it be, it, I think it's more of a question of the costs um, and value for money. I mean, uh, when you say, um, do I think there's untapped markets? Well, no, I don't, I don't think there's untapped markets as much now for the reasons I said in the earlier question, because you yeah. can get access to this information a lot more comprehensively now than you could in the past. You know, you can get an awful lot of data in players in South America. Where was, where was a bit of a, a unique thing for us was, and it, it's, come, it's become more of a case recently with post-Brexit, we, um, I would say we, we were at Manchester City and we, we were looking at Africa and we were thinking, do you know what? We've signed some really talented players from Africa, you know, Koro Torre, Yaya Torre, you know, all these players, but we never really had a presence in Africa. Yeah. We never really, you know, we didn't have scouts in there and we didn't have, you know, we didn't have great knowledge, you know, in all, all but we developed a relationship with a guy called Tom Vernon, who um, runs an organization called Right to Dream, who's now, who now owns and is now the owner of FC Norseland in, uh, in Denmark. And going back 10, 12 years, I remember myself and a guy called Gary Worthington, who's still at Man City now, we went and spent, you know, and a guy called Fergal Harkin, who's still at City, and developed this relationship. And we went over to Ghana. We went to Accra in Ghana, and, and we developed a 10-year plan with the Right to Dream. It was incredible because when you say untapped, it was pure football. It, it, these kids were playing on the edges of, you know, on the edges of, of mud, you know, dirt, Dexter tips. And, uh, and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't manufactured soccer schools. It wasn't, I remember Tom sent, telling us some of the stories about him and his scouts would go off on 16 hour trips Wow. to go and see a game in the north of, of Ghana to go and watch a player. And I remember watching a match there where, you know, a group of lads had got a, you know, 16, 18 hour minibus trip, played the game, jumped on the minibus and drove 18 hours back. Wow. Um, so I, I still think, you know, and, and these, <laughs> I'll tell you a little story. So I was living here in, in Cheshire and I was out in Accra at the time and my son was about 11. And I remember phoning home and my wife saying, I haven't been able to see Sam for three months, for three, three hours. He's, he's, and Sam, my, my younger son, had gone out in the village playing football. And my wife yeah. was saying, I haven't seen him for three hours. And then um, I said, well, I'm, you know, 2,000 miles away. What can I do? And then um, I sat down and with Tom. I was in Accra and we were watching this game. And Tom went, see that lad there playing? He said, he's only 11. He said, uh, when we picked him up, we went to his mum's house and we said, listen, we want to bring him into our academy. And his, his mum started crying because he's, and, and what's, you know, what's the problem? We're going to bring him in. We're going to give him a great education. We're going to give him a football education. We're going to look after him. She said, no, he's only just come back. He's, he's, been, he's been away. He went out to play football three months ago. Goodness me. <laughs> I, st I started laughing because my wife was worried that one of my lads has gone out to play football three hours ago. This 11-year-old kid from a different part of, of Ghana had gone out with literally had gone out with his mates and didn't go back home for three months because he just went out playing football. So, you know, you've still got this environment of these, you know, these countries where kids just go off and play football. 
and it's not stru- it's street football. It's not structured. Yeah. It's not organised. And I, I still think, you know, this is going to continue to produce footballers. I do. No, 100%. Because there was even a fascinating documentary on, um, on Netflix talking about people like Riyad Mahrez and the sort of that he came from playing concrete football. And like even, even there's a documentary coming out about South London footballers and Jaden Sancho playing cage football. And these, these, these are the bedrocks that, um, that really make players. But um, it's now time for my favourite part of the show, which is what the fit are you lying for? Have you got your three statements, Mike? Do me best. I'll do my best, Paul. Okay. I once stalked Alexis Sanchez around the streets of Udine. Wow. I was held captive by General Martin Balzar, the former chief of staff of the Argentine army, while scouting in Argentina. Wow. Number three is I got my first job in Premier League club because someone won the lottery. Because someone won the lottery. Those are some interesting ones. I know. I know you tried to sign Alexis um, when you were at City. Um, you stalked him round the streets of. Oh, you got your first job in football because someone won the lottery. Your first job in a Premier League club. In a Premier League club, Premier League club. That would have been Blackburn. Blackburn? Yeah, that would have been Blackburn. Um, I want to go with, I don't know, the, 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 other, the first two just seem, they just, they just seem like cool stories you tell at a dinner party. So I just feel as though they, 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 must, be, they must be right. So I want to go with the first two is true. And the last one, as a lie, but we'll find that towards the end. Um, yeah, I thought it'd just be great to also just sort of quiz your brain and sort of find out what's next for yourself as well. Obviously, I know you've you sort of left Burnley, you're trying to get back into the game. I know you're part of the Association of Sporting Directors. What's what, what's the sort of plan for you, Mike? Well, I've just come out and um, what, I, what I did do for a couple of years before I, I joined Burnley, I, was, I did some consultancy work, which was lots of small projects. Which, so um, I'm, I'm picking up on them at the moment. Um, I mean, the one thing which is true in football, when you're in a club, when you're in club life, you are in it 24-7. Yeah. No, you are in it 365 days of the year. You know, there is not a minute that you switch off. So it's actually been really nice for me the first time, you know, for a long time that I've been able to just sit back, have a little bit of a breather, and spend a little bit of time with my family, um, but I'm, but I'm I, again at the same time, it, I'm being really active because I'm spending a lot of time, you know, back to back meetings, meeting people, sitting, talking, involvement with the association of sport directors. So, yeah, if 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 the right project comes up, I'll be there. But in the meantime, I've got I've got some you know personal businesses which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of at the moment, which is which is quite interesting. No, that's good. And just speaking on that word project, we typically hear that word project in football and this project is going on, this process and stuff like that. One thing I'm, I'm just curious to, to understand as well is that that Man City project, so obviously, like I remember be, being, a, being a sort of teenager at the time and uh, obviously seeing, seeing Sheikh Mansour and, uh, and Khaldun come in and 
how, how difficult was it to convince the likes of the David Silvers, the Sergio Aguero's, the Yaya Torres to, to, to come down to Manchester and, uh, and be part of this project? Sometimes it was difficult because yeah. you were, you know, at the time, Manchester City were not the club that it is now. It's, you know, it wasn't yeah. a championship club. It didn't have, it didn't have the, you know, the, the, the type of stadium that it did. It didn't have titles under its belt. And I remember when, I remember the first meeting when Mancini um, took over from Mark. He, uh, he got everybody in a room upstairs in the canteen and he said, we, we win the first trophy. He said, and as soon as you win one trophy, everything will change. And everything, and, and he was right, you know, they won the FA Cup against Stoke and it kind of, it kind of changed the mentality. But up to that point, it was, there was a lot of time spent with even just things like the training ground, the training ground where they're at now, I was literally flying around the world, you know, talking to players and agents and showing them computer-generated mock-ups of what the training ground was going to look like, you know, to say, listen, this is what's being built and this is what we're going to do. And, 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 the, and the guy who is called, who's, who's, again, is another one for your podcast you should speak to, have to speak to, is a guy called Gary Cook. And Gary, Cook yeah. Gary Cook was the chief executive of City at the time, one of the best people I've ever worked with. You know, real, real visionary, really really interesting, you know, great story behind him and what he's done and where he's been. And he was all about vision, story, you know, and he he started using, it was funny because he started using things like, you know, this is about a brand, this is, and you'd be thinking, brand football, what, you know, I don't, but what he started to get across everybody in the football club is, listen, we've got to tell people the story, not not where we are now, where we want to be and how these people are going to, going to be part of this story yeah. and, and, and Sparky said this to me and it stuck with me he said when I was at Man United he said I went in United and I was part of a legacy which was already Man United he said but what's been really interesting with the whole Man City thing is you're creating the story part of Man United and winning all the trophies is fantastic he said but Vincent Company and, and Sergio and Sergio Aguero and David Silva you look at what they've done from the very start, what they've created and what they've yeah. left behind. That's, you know, that, that's something which, which we spent a lot of time trying to convince people to come in. Listen, come and be part of this. Come and be part of what this... And do you know underpinning it all was Khaldun and Abu Dhabi. Everything they said, we'll support you on and we'll do, they delivered. And it wasn't, it wasn't with a big song and dance and they didn't want it to be splashed over the newspapers. And it certainly wasn't just about writing out a cheque and you want money, okay, here it goes. It was about support and it was about, you know, interest and part of bigger, bigger longer-term projects. And that, you know, your question before you talked about this project, you know, and everybody's saying project. I've been in a lot of places where they do talk about, yeah, we want this five-year plan, we want this project. Yeah. And then when a couple of results don't quite work, right, we'll scrap the project, we'll do something else. Um, and to be fair to Abu Dhabi, uh, Khaldun, that was never the case. And they said, Gary, you know, we will build a training ground. Boom, they did it. And it yeah. took a long time to be done, but they set out to do everything. And, that, and, and selling that to players and agents was a real, you know, was a real big part of it. And because they've seen it being delivered, and because they've seen players sign, you know, when we signed one and signed another, you know, and then Yaya Tori walks through the door and, and a couple of players are going, they mean business. They do want to win things. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's an interesting thing. And this, it's a thing whereby it didn't just come instantaneously. It wasn't like it was 
football manager or FIFA, like the first trophy didn't come until three years in, the Premier League didn't come until until four years in. But there was even that thing, obviously, where Tottenham uh, picked you guys for the for the Champions right. League, and you had to go, and, you, and you had to go again the next year. So yeah. it was a thing where, by hearing, obviously, that you still had the buy, and you still had the support, is um, is uh, is is uh, is definitely quite an interesting thing. But it was all part, though, and this is where it was really interesting. Going back to the role of the sport, you know, the technical director, I, I was in I was in a room and I was in meetings with constantly an offsite. We'd have go and have offsite, you know. Um, meetings in hotels, you know, in the Lake District. And I was there with people from marketing and commercial. And, you know, and all these people were talking about, it wasn't just about let's go and sign some players and let's play football and let's win games. We were very much included in the business. And they were saying, no, 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 you've got to be here at this, you know, retreat that we're having up in the Lake District for three days because we're setting out objectives and it's about our culture and our values. And you've got to make sure that that then... You know, ingrain, you know, ingrains itself into the football side of it. So that's what was really interesting as well, is it wasn't just sign a player, play football, win games. It was being immersed in a room with people who were talking about brand and strategy and, you know, all of the business elements of the football club, which, which is what it's become to, to, today. No, that's, that's so fascinating. But I wanted to understand, obviously experiencing that, what, what enticed you to then go to to Fulham and go to QPI and then go to Burnley and because it's a very, very different type of type of I project. Mean, yeah, it, it was. And, and, you know, sometimes I had four years at City, um, loved every minute of it. Great people, great club, you know, just incredible, great ownership. I got the opportunity to go and work with Mark again down at QPR and thought, do you know what? I've always been driven by a fresh challenge. Um, yeah. I've always been driven by, do I want to take on a, you know, a, 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 a task where I can build something again? And, and it, you know, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. You know, it didn't work out at QPR. Um, I went to the FA with Dan Ashworth. That was, that was brilliant. You know, sitting in a room, if I look back now, sitting in, you know, that started off being part of Dan's team. It was me, Matt Crocker, Dan, Gareth, you know, Dave Redden. Yeah. And it was at a time where they went... The commission had just come out from Greg Dyke. Greg Dyke had said, win the World Cup 2022. And we all sat in a room at St. George's with Dan every week with Gareth and all up in, you know, just a small team of us. And they'd go, right, he wants us to win the World Cup in 2022. How are we going to do it? So being part of that, uh, right, well, we've got to have a DNA. We've got to have a style of playing. We need more staff. We need better structure. We need better competition. You know, we need more resources to play more games, to go on more tournaments with more coaches. Um, so that with that, the whole, and, and Gary Cook referred to this as the whole building and fixing phase in a football club. Yeah. So what's really interested me is always being part of a building and fixing project. It's always been really, really interesting. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. That's the nature of football. And if you're judged... You know, you're judged about the results on a Saturday, which is frustrating for a sport, you know, for a technical director. You don't really get the time to do that. Is, is that part of the reason why you think a lot of technical directors don't don't do the interviews? Like the other day, I was surprised to see, obviously, Edu come out and do do an interview with Jeff Shreves. Do, do you almost feel that's part of the reason why, why you guys sort of just work behind the scenes and just crack on with it? Every technical director pretty much wants to do the job under the radar. Yeah. Um, because you're always going to get you're always going to get criticised for it for some way and everybody kind of just wants to get the head down, do the job. 
And if you if you see a lot of the you know a lot of the technical directors, they they don't want to be splashed across the pages or on the television or sitting on the bench. Yeah. You know, it's very different to Germany. You know, you go and watch, um, you you know you go and watch any club in in the Bundesliga, and the technical director, the sport director, sat on the bench. That's just not the way it is here. You know. They set up in the stand, and they, you know, a lot of them are very unassuming, very hardworking, very, very humble people who do an incredible job. You know, who, who don't really need to, you know, let the let let the players and the manager be famous. Let's just get our head down and do the job. The reason why I like doing things like this now, I'm not affiliated to a club, is for people to understand what the you know what the real role yeah. entails. Because it's not just about well, he signed that player, he's you know, or, or he hasn't signed that player. It, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, no, definitely. But it's now time to uh, reveal your answers to uh, to what the foot are you lying for? Ah, right. Well, all three of them have a degree of truth. Why no, do my guests do this? Because, because I, so the one which is a lie okay. was the, I was held captive by General Martin Balzar. Okay, yeah. Right. But I wasn't held captive by him. I was at a game, River Plate, um, and we were in this box. I was watching River Plate against, I can't remember who it was, Boca Juniors, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and I stood up to walk out a half time and I, and I said, excuse me. And this, this guy stood up and he's about six foot six. And he said, I am General Martin. Who are you? And I said, I'm Mike Rigg from Manchester City in England. He said, I am General Martin Balsar. The, the former chief of staff of the Argentine army. I was in the Falklands War when I was held captive. And, um, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, wh where's this going? And he said, I'm now the ambassador to Colombia. And I went, oh, that's interesting. I said, I might be going to Columba, Colombia next year because the under 20s World Cup's being held there. This was years ago. And he went, okay, if you get kidnapped there, you call me, I'll help you. So I was uh, so there's a touch of truth that I wasn't held captive by him, but yeah. he promised to help me if I did get kidnapped while I was in Colombia. So, no, it's funny. The, the reason I thought it was true is because someone came on, and one of theirs was um, they were threatened by, by the mafia because of a deal not going through. I kind of thought, okay, yeah. I've, yeah. I've had that sort of one before, seven, but yeah, how about the others? Well. I did get my first job in the Premier League club because someone did, somebody, somebody was there. I'm not going to name names, not fair. Yeah, yeah. I got a phone call and saying, such and such has just won the lottery, literally won the lottery. Would you? And I was at Sheffield Wednesday at the time as academy manager. And it was a going back and working. We'd worked together at, at Wales with me and Mark Hughes. And Sparky phoned me up and said, listen, this guy's just won the lottery. Come and, come and work with us. So that's where it did get me opportunity to go from Sheffield Wednesday to, to Blackburn. Um, and we didn't really stalk him. We kind of like just followed him, him a little bit around. Yeah. So we were, it was the summer we were trying to sign. It was the summer that we signed Sergio Aguero. Yeah. That we were trying to sign Alexis Sanchez and Sergio Aguero. And wow. the guy, the, so like we were, but it's like a lot of these, like every transfer window, you're spinning a lot of plates because you don't know which one you're actually going to get. So me and me and a guy called Barry, Barry Hunter, um, we were out in Udinese because we, we were trying to, Sign Alexis Sanchez, and we were part of it. We were always trying to find out a little bit more about him. And me and Barry were just sat there having a coffee, and and we saw him walking around. It's Udinese, a beautiful little city. It's only small, but we and, we, and me and Barry were like, let's follow him. Let's see where he goes and what he does. So we're just kind of like it's turned into a stalking, you know, thing that we didn't really. Obviously, we didn't stalk him. We just followed him a little bit, see what he was doing. But 
Um, that's it. No, that's brilliant. But yeah, just some quick fire questions before before we we we, uh, we close. A technical director to watch out for, up and coming technical director. Oh, great question! Great question. Um, he won't thank me for saying this, but he's kind of un under the radar. But Gavin Flegg at Man City, who's been there a long time. Um, you know, Gavin's you know done a good job at, at Man City for a long, long time. Um, Rob Newman, and I'm not sure his actual title, but Rob Newman, who's just about to join West Ham. Rob's been sure. there a lot of time. You know, Rob's Rob's you know an awful lot of experience. It'll be really interesting to see how he goes in because you know recruitment at West Ham's a bit you know is tough, um, and I'm sure Rob will do a you know a, a sterling job there. Do you know one which will be really interesting? He's given time yeah. um, because they've had a tough time as well, and they're going through a transition. Is Richard Garlick at Arsenal? Okay, yeah. So we know he's not the technical director. You know, Edu's the technical director, but. You know, in, in a club, there's different kind of people. So Richard worked at West Brom. He's gone to the Premier League. He's worked a lot at Premier League. He did an incredible job steering everybody through the period of COVID. Um, yeah, I, I think I think Richard will do a good job at Arsenal and help, you know, because Arsenal's a big club and it's having a, yeah. having a tough time at the moment, but it won't last. I mean, listen, it's not my club. What's your club, yeah. by the way? Uh, literally Arsenal, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there we go. So yeah. Richard Garland. So I, I think all the... All the bad time that Arsenal are having now, I think it'll turn itself around eventually. And I think the likes of Richard Garlick will be, you know, a, a good man to have as part of that. No, definitely. Uh, a signing that you're most proud of that, that you've been involved in? Oh, getting the Aguero one over the line was, was, you know, was really interesting because we were we were going for Alexis Sanchez and it didn't quite work out. And you know, it was, I remember meeting the agents of working with the agent for quite a lot. On that, and you know, for him to come in and be part of that and do so well, it's really, you know, being part of bringing him in was was really interesting. Um, do you know what? Like, that's just like, like some of the some of the the, the, the stranger ones, like um, Sonia Luco from okay, leaving on a free and bringing him into to to Fulham, and you know, doing so well when he was at Fulham. Some of the ones, you know, like. Tom Kearney out of Blackburn, you know, not, yeah. not some of the big ones, just some of the ones who, who went on and did well and helped them get promoted. You know, I'm, I'm murdered because once it's done, it's done. I kind of like move on and I don't really think about, yeah. you know, the, I, don't, I don't try and harp on to the back end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, other, the other thing about it as well is you, you just, you're part of it. You're not, you know, I've never, I've never been the person that has ever said, listen, they're all my signings and I signed them. Cause it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a team, yeah. Person. You're part yeah, of a head team. of recruitment scout, yeah. There's some, you know, there's some brilliant stories behind all of them that signing him, you know, Balotelli when he came to the club and Yaya Torre and some of the things we, you know, we had to do. And is, is there ever a point where you're going to like look back and, and just sort of, it's, it's, it, I think it's just the normal thing in life, really. We're just always focused about the next thing, the next thing and just moving on that we never really look back at what we've achieved and think, goodness me, like, yeah. look at the things I've done. But, well, just just wait there one second. No worries, no worries. This is this is how this is how exciting it gets in my life, right? I'm up in the loft cleaning out the loft the other day, and I come across one year at Man City. Me and me, and, I was telling Barry Hunter, who's now at Liverpool. Yeah. What I did is every time I went on a trip, I thought, do you know what? I'll buy a postcard and I'll just write a note on it of 
what games so you know what 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 trips so I've got all these oh, from, well, yeah. from <laughs> it's really dull but I just I got it out the other day and I'm just thinking about all these um all these places I've been to like Barcelona and and you know what I went there for Amsterdam Paris wow um so you know just looking here so you know what I've got these out because what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down and think you know I, can I even remember going on these trips and doing these games um, so here, went, went to Barcelona with Gareth Griffiths, watched Barca versus Real Madrid on Monday evening, 5-0. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. That was on Sunday to Tuesday, the 28th of November, whatever year it'll be. To answer your question, I think one day I will look back and think, see if I can try and just go through all my notebooks and think about where I went and what I did. No, definitely. But yeah, no, that's brilliant. But yeah, we like to end the show with the what the footy question, which is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space. Generally like this, um, it's a clearer understanding of the role and yeah. what goes on it. And, and I think you said before, it's tough because people in the job don't really want to come out and tell them what they're doing because you can't. Yeah. Because you can't, you, you, you're working for someone and you can't really come out and tell everybody this because, you know, what's he telling everybody what we do? And you kind of get on and get your head down. I think more people that ask questions about this role and get to understand it, that it ultimately it's about creating a high-performance culture and a high-performance environment for a high-performance strategy will ultimately benefit the club. It's not just about how do we get on on Saturday and... and and we win, and this player does well, and the technical director's great. Uh, you know, you get beat, this player doesn't do too well, get rid of the technical director. It's, 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 having a, it's continuing these discussions to understand what each club needs, yeah. supporting the manager to make sure he does his job. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's not just about recruitment. It's about really creating a, you know, a, a really comprehensive strategic plan. No, that's super useful. But Mike Rigg... Thank you very much for coming on the What The Footy podcast. You've dropped some absolute gems today and um, best of luck with getting back into the game. I know we want to see you back there soon. If you ever fancy fancy a job at the Arsenal, we're always... Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely welcome you with open arms because I'm an Arsenal fan. So, um, so, yeah. Good luck. Thank you very much. All the best. Cheers. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now supporting <laughs> Arsenal. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans.